Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Amir Jandali, founder and CEO of Future Meets Present, which is a social design company that uses graphics, digital world building, and other communications tools to visualize a more sustainable future. As the Future Meets Present website puts it, the company is aiming to design the world's vision board. Amir is also a consultant with New York City's very exciting sounding Department of Nightlife. And it's actually that work that will be the focus of our discussion today. What does it mean to bring a sustainability lens to the nightlife of the city that never sleeps? Stay with us as we discuss. Hi, Amir. It's great to talk with you. I love that. That's such a good <laughs> intro. That was so, I love it. You sound so good on the mic, Kristen. I love oh, it. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. I'm going to take that as a high compliment from someone with your background, which we will get into in just a second. But actually, let's let's just start right there. So um, I am excited to hear a little bit more about your backstory, both as an artist and as someone passionate about sustainability. So can you just say a little bit about how your personal and professional trajectory kind of led you to end up supporting New York's Office of Nightlife? Yeah, for sure. And and it, it really is. I mean, you're catching this is so fresh. It's super fresh, right? So um, by the time of this recording, the our first webinar was yesterday. So I'm definitely still in the afterglow, still in the awe, um, kind of always in the awe, actually, to, to, be, to be truthful with you, seeing how the dots have been connecting. Um, but I really like I'll, I'll open up with this quote that, you know, Steve Jobs said the dots connect backwards. And that was uh, that that quote has become just ever more meaningful for me and 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 effervescent over over the last decade or so. Because I started out, I'm from southern New Mexico, from a town called uh, Las Cruces. So if any of my Cruces homies are listening, still repping hard. Um, I'm from southern New Mexico, and I used to DJ there in El Paso, Texas. Um, I had a career as a nightclub and festival DJ for almost four years after college. DJing minimum four to five nights a week for four years. So that was the life. And I think it it really served me personally because it was um, an avenue for me to talk about social change and things that were important. Uh, my family's from Syria originally, so I'm first-gen American. And the war had started uh, in Syria around the time that my DJ career was peaking. And um, I used my DJ platform to just raise awareness. I would wear t-shirts that would just, you know, promote freedom in Syria and just raise awareness like that. And then so it was kind of that headspace of using my platform for good. I was in that headspace when I watched this documentary about plastic bags. And long story short, that that heartbreak was kind of a revelatory moment for me that um, an insightful moment where it's like, okay, hold on a second. Everything that I thought was normal suddenly isn't. And that was enough dissonance there to just galvanize me to move forward. And so I moved to New York City and I got my master's in design for social innovation. And and originally it was just thinking like, okay, maybe I can use design or branding as an inroads to work with different brands um, and solve this plastic thing while maybe branding myself better as a DJ. So it kind of made sense in 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 the line of uh thinking in the I was line in. of dots yep in line mm-hmm. of dots yeah um i would have never known how what was around the corner um but i took that step and i got my masters and that's what set me up here to start working in the climate space in new york city 
Fascinating. All right. Such an interesting, an interesting set of dots of this kind of combination of um, artistry and sustainability. And so I want to, we're definitely going to talk more about that intersection, but just another kind of baseline question. And this one's about the office with which you are working. So what can you tell us? I, I have to say, my colleagues were super jealous when I was talking with someone from the Office of Nightlife. Everyone was like, that sounds amazing. So can you just say a little bit more about the mandate of the New York City Mayor's Office of Nightlife? Because it sounds like a fascinating place. Yeah, totally. Um, and, and so I'm I'm still um, navigating that space as well. But it it's um, it makes sense why how why it exists. There's around 40... Uh, somewhere between 40 to 50 cities in the world that have an office of nightlife. Um, Berlin has one. I think the first one might have started in Amsterdam. And it's it's uh, it's a government entity that exists when when the nightlife sector of a city has reached a certain critical mass. And, and they kind of exist to um, up to keep the culture of the nightlife sector. So in New York City, there's around 300,000 jobs are attributed to nightlife, bartenders, everything in hospitality, servers, club owners, uh, DJs, performers, artists, all across the board, right? It's such a part of our cultural fabric. So we have this entity that exists to upkeep it and then also kind of act as touch points with other government agencies around and and promote awareness campaigns around um, preventing drug overdose or, or how to react to noise pollution in your area or how to keep nightclubbing safe. That kind of thing, right? So that, yeah, that's really what they're about. That's great. And I think that's a really good transition into the kind of the issue that you are working with the Office of Nightlife on, which is around sustainability. And and my understanding is that you are working with them to design a curriculum to green New York City nightclubs. Um, so first of all, do I have that that right, that kind of general <laughs> principle of what you're doing? Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And I think um, there's also, let me like preface this with kind of um, a bit of an experimental uh, spirit, which is really beneficial, I think, to me, because this is kind of a blue ocean territory for a lot of us. I think their their intent and what they realize is that they've never been a, a part of the climate conversation in any deep way. Um, there's, of course, the awareness and conversations around eliminating straws and plastic cups and like the low-hanging fruit which is really great it's your gateway drug right um they realize like hey we should we should be stepping this up and we should and just recognizing the immense social influence that the nightclub scene has so it's in that spirit that i was approached Okay. All right. um and so you mentioned a couple of those sustainability issues that you know the nightlife scene has uh, faced in the past, things around waste, um, energy use. Are there other kind of issues that that you're thinking about when you're thinking about this broad sustainability of the nightlife sector? I think that that's a good question. And um, I'm also newly orienting to what's beyond the low-hanging fruit and connecting the dots with what I've come to understand is just larger climate action and seeing them as one in the same. So I'm, I'm looking at a nightclub, not just as, as, as a club, but it's a building. I mean, if you really think about it, um, and most club owners lease their space, uh, they're connected with their landlords, they know their local communities. Um, I talk to the House of Yes pretty frequently. It's a club in Bushwick, and their owner Justin and I were, we had you know an informal interview just for me to gather some data before putting this webinar together. And he was very proud at the the um 
the community that is built around the club. He's like, yeah, the cops come by every once in a while, knock on our door to wave. Like that nightclubs are a cultural center. And so now I'm looking at this and I'm seeing it in a few different lenses. I'm seeing, yes, eliminating plastic. Yes, compost as much as you can. Yes, take a look at your partnerships and your procurement. Where are you getting your your materials from? Can you talk to your vendors and see if they can be more climate oriented? Who are you banking with? Are you banking with a, um, a bank that is investing in fossil fuels? Can you divest from that? So I'm looking at these in a few different lenses in addition to the building context. And this is so fresh for me, Kristen. Like last night, I was up to like two in the morning just doing all kinds. I'm literally looking on my on my right monitor at passive house criteria and certifications because I'm suddenly obsessed with building efficiency. <laughs> and like as of 24 hours ago, I'm obsessed with building efficiency. So that's <laughs> the the top lens I'm looking at it through, in which I'm looking at it through. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, they are buildings um, and... I would I would have thought that a number of the issues facing nightclubs, other nightlife venues, are in fact pretty, I guess, pretty similar to those that are faced in other types of building stock. Um, it sounds like that's kind of where you're starting too, is is how to pull in some of the lessons from broad building energy efficiency. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're learning there. And then I guess I also wanted to ask, are there in fact kind of building-related issues that are unique to nightclubs that aren't necessarily exact correlations with other types of buildings but are, are special to the the type of institution that we're talking about now. Yeah, that's interesting to think about um, electricity usage and what does that look like considering they, they turn their lights on only at night. That's fascinating to me. And, and that's something, again, with this, experimental, um, with this experimental lens, I don't know yet. Um, I don't know yet, but but we really are, if I take a step back, future meets present. Um, we're a social design studio. And I think that gives us permission to to try things and run pilot programs and let the research and the data define what the design intervention should be. I don't want to position myself as the expert on building efficiency. I don't want to position myself as the the one with all the answers. I want to position myself as the team that is here for the process the discovery process of mapping out New York City, New York State regulations, mapping out the uh, the fees and penalties and goals as mandated by Local Law 97, which is something that New York City now has as a part of our Climate Mobilization Act. It's kind of like New York City's version of the Green New Deal. And uh, Local Law 97 has these benchmarks for building efficiency and decarbonization. Uh, and, and that's just super exciting and something that I think nightclub owners haven't really seen themselves in a part of that story. So I'm down for the process. I'm here for the process of mapping this out and then also going in and learning how this community sees themselves, which I am very intimately aware of because I've been in this scene for a decade. So I want to reconnect with that. And then we get to ask the questions like, great, how many employees do you have? Great, can we run these kind of culture change workshops and get a sense of everyone's internal sentiments around climate change. Cool. Hey, listen, club owner, eight out of 10 of your employees are eagerly waiting for climate action. So this is going to be an easy job for you to tell them that we're converting our gas burners into heat pumps and we're going to start doing this and X and Y and Z. So I don't fully know exactly what will set a nightclub apart from another building in terms of its climate interventions. 
but I'm down to find out. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about it in terms of, you know, that very specific point about they are using energy at very different times of day than most of the buildings. Um, although, again, city that never sleeps, I guess there are probably more buildings in New York that are up at night than there are in most places. But still, you know, that that has some interesting, um, some interesting potential in and of itself in terms of, you know, just how electricity is is used at different times, time of use pricing, that sort of thing. So um, it's going to be great. And I should have said at the beginning, I, I know that you're kind of in the relatively early stages of this work. So we're, we're getting you as this is evolving, which is which is really exciting. But I, I certainly, yeah, I just want to share with our listeners, you know, this is the time when, when things are in fact coming together on this. And so, um, and they can also get involved. This Saturday is Earth Day. Let's celebrate our planet and commit to tackling the challenges of climate change. At Resources for the Future, we make that part of our daily work. In honor of Earth Day, we are asking listeners to make a donation and help us fulfill RFF's mission of advancing a healthy environment and a thriving economy. Make a gift at rff.org slash donate on or before Earth Day, and you will receive a print subscription to Resources Magazine. Thanks for being a Resources Radio listener. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Let me talk a little bit more about that community engagement piece, because I know that's been a focus of yours is, is you know, how to work with the broader community, whether it's the folks who work at night at nightclubs, own them, enjoy them um, to actually inform your thinking here. So, you know, I was fortunate to listen in to your webinar yesterday. Um, it was fascinating. And I wondered if you could say a little bit more about what that community engagement strategy looks like, how you're thinking about engaging with those folks, and to the extent that you've had sufficient conversations, maybe some of what you've learned so far. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful framing. Thank you. Um, and and this is really, again, like back to that original dominant feeling uh, of awe that I have, Kristen, and just how I, it was completely unforeseeable for me. My spidey sense felt it, right? Like how, how, how all these initiatives and projects work together, my spidey sense felt it, but I couldn't necessarily sit down, even if we were to sit down a year ago and, and on a, with a pen and paper map out how all this stuff is connected, but now I can. And so to answer your question, uh, a good starting point for this is Climate Week. So in New York City, we have the largest climate week on the planet. It's every September. It's usually the last week or the second to last week of September. And it's time during, um, it, it's it's during that time because that's when the United Nations General Assembly happens in New York. Super high vibes, tons of events, hundreds of events that are happening. It's kind of like South by Southwest. Um, my organization has been running an event during climate week called the Marketplace of the Future since 2017. So we're one of the longest running consecutive events in climate week history. Super cool. And Marketplace of the Future is inspired by the 1939 New York World's Fair, which was the first World's Fair to be future-oriented. It was called the World of Tomorrow. And um, it's um, very particularly inspiring to me because because of its, its, um, its the cultural need of the time in history. That was around the Great Depression. And people needed something to look forward to. They needed something aspirational. So World's Fair gave a glimpse into a future where there's this box with a glass screen on it and you could sit down in front of it and you could watch moving pictures with sound. And they called it a television. 
And there was this brand there called Kodak, and they produced photographs, but the photographs weren't black and white, they were in color. And that was the first time the public saw these things. And I just think that's so special and powerful and meaningful for people to remember that our normal is constantly evolving. Um, and and I, I really appreciate you uh, uh, taking a walk of uh, on this stream of consciousness with me because it's all connecting, I promise. But it's in this spirit that we created the marketplace of the future so we can give the public a glimpse of what will be normal in a net zero future. Right. So that's Marketplace of the Future. And we bring startups together. We have live jazz, beautiful skyline views. There's zero waste bar. Um, Brands that are working on carbon sequestration and making products out of sequestered carbon. Brands that are creating bike operated compost pickup programs, Um, solar panels that you can hang on your window and charge your phone directly from the sun, community outreach and activism uh, groups and that kind of thing all exist at Marketplace. So that's been running since 2017, and and it's been a beautiful vehicle for us to attract and build community around people seeking um, positive future visioning, solutions-oriented people. And now this year is the first year that we're running many events leading up to Climate Week in September, so we've already had three. And what we're doing now, this is a direct answer to your question, the strategy here is can you create conditions in which a community creates itself? And and the way we approach that is just very simply in experimental mode, allowing the audience of one event to choose the topic for the next one through post-its and voting on various topics that we put up on the wall. And what we found is um, about 20 to 30% of the people that arrive at one event have been to the previous one. So it's cool. We're seeing like, oh, yeah, I voted on buildings at the Future of Food event in January. So that's why I'm here and I brought my friend. Nice. Okay, cool, right? It's working. It keeps our volunteers engaged. It keeps our attendees engaged. It lets us dive deeper with different thought leaders. Um, It lets us de-risk our event planning process. It lets us fundraise a little bit here and there, build deeper relationships with sponsors so we can ultimately uplift this entire thing. And so what I'm seeing now is my past self has set me up really beautifully to be able to have an avenue for public outreach and engagement to be able to talk about the breakthroughs and interventions that we now are poised to create with the private sector and these nightclubs. That's and not like this is so live processing right now with you, Kristen. I have not even written into my (laughs) journal yet. (laughs) Yeah. So that's how the dots are connecting. Yeah. That's fantastic. I think there's kind of a classic set of community engagement type activities that I've been aware of. Um, but, you know, it's it's your your answer to that question really emphasized for me that the more creative you can get, and obviously you're in a very creative landscape here, um, and the more that you can actually get people invested in driving the agenda, the better off you are. So that was a great answer. I'm really... Yeah, and I would I would note that we are gonna I, hopefully if we can post a link to the to the webinar that you hosted um, just yesterday uh, from the day that we're recording, and so folks can actually kind of understand a little bit more about the ways that you're trying to reach out to the public outside of Climate Week too. So it's great. I want to pivot and ask about the word 
curriculum. Uh, again, I, feel free to kind of tell me if that's not the right term, but that was a term that you and I kind of talked about early on. And um, yeah, curriculum to me implies education of some sort. So you're taking information in, but then in the long term, the, the goal is to give that information back out, some sort of education process. And again, recognizing that you're definitely still in the early stages here. Um, do you have any sense of what that education will look like, how that will occur. And another thing that I just wanted to highlight from your webinar yesterday is that you've mentioned that there are sources of funding behind this too. You know, it's hard to sort of say to someone, look at all the amazing things you can do. I have no idea how you're going to pay for them, (laughs) right? But one of the things that you emphasized um, is that, you know, there may in fact be opportunities to tap into some federal funds, other funds. So how are you thinking about the education piece of both the strategies that you're identifying and also how people can actually, you know, afford them. Yeah, super cool. Um, and it is very much happening in real time. But I think I think the way we're setting it up makes sense. Yeah, I was pacing around the other night just like thinking about. So this project originally started when, you know, I was talking to the Office of Nightlife and um, they opened the door for a webinar series. They're like, cool, let's just, you know, let's just have you be there and just like talk to people and help them understand. And then through my conversations just with, you know, people, collaborators in my community, it's like, well, hey, also, do you know, like you could also get that funded. I mean, that's what the Inflation Reduction Act is all about. And I was like, oh my God, yeah, obvious, like, duh, right? Like this is literally what it's for. So now it evolved from just an awareness educational piece to something that's turning into more of a, concierge brokerage matchmaking avenue of work and i think there's a feedback loop that is important to to honor in that uh, you have to let the process be the strategy so the objective yesterday was quite simply and i and i and i made this very clear on slide number two the theme today is to demystify demystification is the first objective remove that lift the veil and and help people contextualize, have a context for which they can see climate solutions through. And I think yesterday was success in, in terms of doing that, just helping people understand the sources of carbon emissions, the sinks of carbon emissions, what interventions look like, what does the path to scale look like, and what is your role in scaling some of these solutions and taking accountability for your own footprint. So that's the first educational piece there is demystification. And now we're going to see we have people that have opted into a pilot program where we get to work with them on a more bespoke, again, concierge type of basis and dive into, for example, the House of Yes and run those user interviews and and find the vendors and service providers that can come in and do an energy efficiency audit and, and give us the information that we need to be able to identify the clear intervention points. Based on what we learned there, we designed a webinar 2.0 where the demystification is abbreviated, but it's more so like, great, we've demystified, we started working with this partner, here's the experiments we ran, here's what we learned, here's what we're doing next. And given this process, we've increased our workforce capability, we've hired two more designers, etc. We can now take on three more pilot projects. Any takers. That's the vision. That sounds fantastic. I sort of want to ask you when those pilots are starting. Is that a real-time thing? Are you, sounds like at least one of them you're starting already, but is that a near-term prospect? Is this something we should record a subsequent podcast on? 
I, I would, that would be super sick. I would love that. Yeah. I mean, the way, you know, I think the process has already started. I think it started, you know, philosophically speaking, that night I watched the documentary, <laughs> you know, more than 10 years ago. Um, but this process here, I think, has definitely started. And I'm super excited to bring my my findings back to you and seeing we have to start immediately, Kristen, you know, like we it's it the urgency is real and the time is right. You know, um, we need to get this system and this process templatized and we need to just make that public and we need to do our work. We need to also make it available for other people to replicate. We need to work with other offices of nightlife around the country, around the world. And this has to galvanize the movement so that we run towards climate solutions. We run towards the future we want rather than away from the one we fear. That's the whole point here. Like, that's the vision that society has now been fed up with the doom and gloom. And we're sprinting, sprinting and dancing towards the future we want. <laughs> I like the word both sprinting and dancing. Sprinting that's, and dancing. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's right. A, I love it. That's the vision. It's going to be a great visual. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of sprinting and dancing, another I'm going to I'm going to kind of close the substantive part of our conversation um, by talking about some of the solutions. And in fact, some of the amazing things that you highlighted in the webinar yesterday about sustainability strategies that clubs and restaurants really around the world are already employing. Um, just some really fun, fun things that you mentioned. So to, you know, to sort of round out on a very positive note, can you give us just a few examples of some of those kind of exciting things that you've seen happening in other jurisdictions? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I'm, um, I'm super excited to dive even deeper into this. Um, but I think as a whole, to me, um, I'm a glass half full kind of person. And I just think the fact that we're collectively over the straws and cups, like it's it's almost like an eye roller now. To me, that's fascinating. I think we're it's super great that we're just like, it's no longer a hot topic, I think. Um, so I'm very excited about that. And I think I've seen just in our brief research, we found um, a lot in the UK, uh, bars and clubs that are powered by their own renewables, that have battery storage in them, some of them that have dance floors that generate electricity, some of them that are very conscious about where their, their food ingredients come from and making sure none of it goes to waste. So securing those baseline needs, keeping things circular, keeping things renewable energy, keeping things regenerative, that's very exciting that that's starting to become a cultural norm. Now, what I'm more excited about is when we can transcend the impacts and solutions in our own footprint, transcend it into pulling our social cultural levers where nightclubs can be a source of policy advocacy, where they can be talking about their financing and who they're banking with, where they can be including their vendors and their partners and the places that they're renting their, their chairs from and their lighting equipment. Can they inspire them to switch to EVs and that kind of thing? What does our partnerships and procurement look like? And when we start getting into conversations around this is a nightclub, this is our uh, emissions disclosures. This is our, our, our carbon footprint this year. We're aiming to be, we're cutting it in half next year. So I'm referencing a lot Project Drawdown in specific uh, a resource that they created called uh, the Climate Action at Work Guide, which is these levers that every entity can pull to become beyond net zero. And that's where you start using your social cultural capital. So I'm excited to see how that evolves in the coming years. That is fantastic. Um, yeah, and that feels like a 
it's almost like a top of the stack in and of itself. Um, I know you're a podcast aficionado, so I imagine you've heard of the top of the stacks, but I feel like you both gave us one and I definitely want to invite you to, to share any other kind of top of the stack resources that you would want to recommend, whether it could be a book, a podcast, anything you'd like um, could be on this topic or elsewise. But yeah, anything that, that you might want to share it with our listeners in terms of additional additional content. Yeah, beautiful. And I think before I even answer that, I want to just say like this podcast and resources for the future. I've kind of been, <laughs> I've been like pseudo obsessed with with y'all for a while. I mean, like it's in the name, right? I don't even remember how I came across y'all, but it was years ago and I'm starting Future Meets Present right years ago. And I'm just thinking about what are going to be my sources of truth. So drawdown.org is one. And I've looked to rff.org for that as well and that's how I've learned a lot about carbon taxing and that kind of like these next level nerdy things this podcast is where I learned about the scoping plan thanks to you and that was a huge part of yesterday's webinar so what you're doing is working so thank you very much I just have to say that and for the top of my stack um, in addition to this podcast here uh, I'll share a shameless plug for one that I co-host with one of my closest friends named Neil it's called leave looking up we just launched our first season and it's um, uplifting conversations about the state of the world. And we talk with musicians, um, cancer survivors. We talk to United Nations champion of the earth. We talk to climate activists and influencers. Um, we talk to women creating movements of gender equality. It's, it's great. It's like really more of a full spectrum conversation series. So that's one. Uh, two, I'll go in your order of podcasts. Uh, books and articles Two, really quickly i love atomic habits the main takeaway that i'll offer there is um, the most beneficial thing for me has been to focus on systems rather than the goal build your systems such that your goal is naturally reached and then you can improve the system one percent each time to increase your goal so make sure building those systems for yourself are the preconditions to reaching the goal so I love that from Atomic Habits. Three, last thing I'll leave is this really awesome article that I just found a few days ago by Vox about the right kind of climate optimism. The argument is that the right kind of optimism is that which is changeable, where the future is changeable, not passive and it's just going to work out, but it will be better if we work hard to change it. And I think hearing that has given me so much validation to keep my horns down, keep them sharp, and keep running forward as as fast as possible, and and dancing forward, and dancing well. forward. There Thank we you. go. All right. Nailed it. <laughs> Great. Beautiful note. <laughs> great. All right. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much again for joining me. We've got a lot of great things to recommend to our listeners, and yeah, it's been a pleasure. Awesome. Beautiful, Kristen. Thank you. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. 
The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.